So I have a story to tell you, and uh, we're going to be in the book of Judges. We're going to be continuing our, our study of the book of Judges. But I have a story to tell you about a young man who is helping his mother serve uh, pie to his father and all their guests at the dinner table. Each time the boy brought another piece of pie to the table, he'd set it down in front of his dad, who would then pass it on to one of the others at the table. After watching his father do this several times, the boy leaned towards his father and whispered, It's no use, Dad. Mom's cutting all the pieces the same size. <laughs> so, you know, maybe your mom, you know, was nice to her husband and did that, but obviously not in that story. Judges, and we were in Judges chapter 1. Let's see, let me get right to where we were at. We were in verse 4. And in verse 4 it says, And Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzite into their hand, and they slew of them in Bezek 10,000 men. Uh, just starting off, I want you to think about this. Uh, can you imagine if you were living back in this time, if you're a guy here, ladies, you would get the exemption for this for the most part. But the Lord might have called you to go to battle, and you may have had to kill someone. That may have very well been the, the, the battle of life that you were chosen to be in. If you were in the book of Judges or in the book of Joshua, you may have spent a good portion of your life doing nothing but fighting for the Lord. And that fighting for the Lord could be all sorts of different ways. Obviously, in this case, they're specifically talking about going out and doing combat. That means there's basically two groups. They're going to come together and they're just going to try to bash each other's brains out, slice each other to pieces and see who the victor is. Uh, that's what warfare is kind of like. Yes, we've modernized it and we've tried to drape this, this concept of ethical and moral warfare on top of it, but in its core, it's brutal. It's violent. It's, it's something that man should never have the taste to want to live for. When you have a man that desires to go to war in this kind of warfare, uh, you, you know, that might, young ladies, good hint, just, you know, uncheck that person from your list right there. Uh, that'd be a good indication to somebody you probably do not want to ho- uh, hitch up your rest of your life to. Because it's very easy to have an ideological idea about what warfare is, and we've, gla- we've glamorized it, we've glorified it, and I have a lot of respect for the people who have gone before me in the military, whether it is World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the Cold War, uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, you know, honored Bosnia, Serbia, all the other, I mean, just keep going through history. I have a lot of respect for the people who served. I really do. And I don't care whether they served in a combat situation or not. Um, for me, I served on board a combat ship. I served on an aircraft carrier, but we never actually blew anybody up. Uh, we were the unfortunate people that uh, when I first got there, you know, they said, cross this line and you die in Libya, and we'd cross that line and nothing would happen, but the next ship would come in and they would get to blow up an airplane. You know, we could get any fun like that. Uh, I was there when Desert Shield started, so there's all the stuff going on, and uh, we didn't get to actually do anything. Now, we thought we were going to do something, uh, but nothing actually really happened. And I'm thankful in a lot of ways for the Lord for that because there's a lot of people who go off to war when they come back. There's some repercussions. And it's not just, I'm not talking just PTSD. I'm just talking about there's a lot of things they have to deal with, whether that's guilt of the fact that they survived because God was merciful and one of their friends didn't. Uh, if you would have been one of these people that went out to judges and you went out to war, understand not everybody comes back home. 
and you, it may have been your best friend that you went out with, you went out to battle and you're going to come home and you're coming home to your wife and your kids and you see his house next to yours with their wife and their kids and daddy's not coming home. Uh, I think that's one of the great privileges that the church has is that we have the ability to minister at those particular cases in helping the wives and the children and all the other people when those things happen. It doesn't have to be a war. It can be Mount St. Helens blew up and uh, one of your family members had to go there to try to help things out and didn't make it back. You know, it could be whatever natural occurrence could happen. It could be something else. That's the one thing that's great about the church family is we have the ability to help one another, to stand in the gap when there's something going on with the family, whether that's like Pastor Stewart right now or something else. That's what me marks and defines a true church family. You know, and it's like the old saying, I understand not everybody in the family is going to be just perfectly, you know, wonderful towards each other because no family does it ever work out that way. You know, you might have some weird cousins that like to live under bridges and whatever else and have things with UFOs and who knows what else, right? But it's still a church family. And the thing is, it should be the love of Christ that constrains us and allows us to be a blessing to others. Because let's face it, everybody here, you wait long enough and I come back, I should be able to sit down with every one of you and every one of you are going to have a story of some calamity that happened in your life. That's the time the church family can jump in and help. That's the time that, that God has given us as the church is to be able to really reach out to people. And it's not just people that are in our church family now. It's the ones that you may lead to the Lord and bring into the family. You know, it's uh, our pastor often talks about uh, one of the things that happens is in any good Christian church, if somebody comes in here and nobody knows who they are, there should be at least a couple people saying, hi, I'm glad you're here. My name is, you know, fill in the blank. Why? Because if they're not welcome here, then where are they welcome at? If this is truly God's house, there should be no place on earth that anybody should not be welcome to come in. Now, that doesn't mean they get to stay forever. There are some people who are coming in with a motive, and all, an ulterior motive, so to speak. Uh, that's maybe the time for the pastor as the shepherd to go, uh, it's time to get you. No, you can leave. You need to go. But if a person comes in and they're lost or saved and they're hurting, this should be the place that they're coming. This should be their refuge. So when you read some of these stories in the book Judges, just remember every time they had a battle, not everybody comes home. And some people that come home don't come home complete. And I'm not talking physically of missing limbs. I'm talking they're affected in their heart. I'll give you an example of that. A friend of mine was a Vietnam vet. And uh, he was with the Marines. And every time the 4th of July come around, he'd be out sleeping and everybody would be lighting off the fireworks. He would revert back to Vietnam and start doing a patrol in his yard. And his own wife's testimony is, I'm afraid to wake him up because I think he'll hurt me if I try to wake him up. There's some people that are still, you would think the Vietnam War, that's so long ago. Yeah, but it takes an instant like that for your brain to take you back. And that means you can be an 80-year-old here, and there may be some things that happened to you in your battle of life when you were 4 years old, 6 years old, 8 years old, 10 years old, and all it takes is an instant, and those memories can come right back. Those situations, those emotions, those fears, the anger, all those emotions can come forth. And that's why we have to have grace with people. That's why the Lord talks about having love because love goes and charity is talking about when somebody's going through some of these things, you may not understand it all, 
But that doesn't mean you can't have love and charity for them when that situation goes on. And so we need to think about some of those things when we're looking in the book of Judges. But to continue on here in Judges, it says, And they found Adon Bezek in Bezek, and they fought against him, and they slew the Canaanites and the Perizzites. But Adon Bezek fled, and they presented after him, and caught him, and cut off his thumbs and his great toes. And Adon Bezek said, Three score and ten kings, having their thumbs and their great toes cut off, gathered their meat under my table, as I have done, so God hath requited me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So the first thing to think about in this particular case is Adon Basic conquered 70 kings, and the one of the things he would do is he'd take their kings, he'd chop their thumbs off and chop their toes off. So let's just start with the first one. Why would you chop somebody's toes, big toe off? Anybody have an idea? Balance? There's some... You can't run if you don't have a big toe. The best you can do is a shuffle. You'll never be able to run away. You could never get away. Thumbs. What happens if you don't have thumbs? You can't, it's hard to pick anything up. So you notice the word the Bible uses here about how they ate. It says here, and they gathered their meat. That was, so if he threw meat off the table onto the floor, they would have to take their hands and try to scoop it together to pick it up and be able, and, and grab it without the benefit of a thumb to put it in their mouth. All the things that we take for granted that you can do with a thumb. You know, uh, an example would be, think of birds and a bird in a tree and they grab like this. Well, you cut that thing off and see them stand on a tree sometime. First time the wind goes, they're coming off of that thing. Or they're going to do one of them loopy loop things if they have really big long claws. But they can't position and grip and hold on to things. Uh, you know, without thumbs, your wife is going to come to you with that pickle jar that doesn't want to open up. And let's just face it, you got no chance because you can't. How, it, what are you going to do? I mean, it's like one of those, well, maybe you hold it in your lap and then you try. It, it's going to be frustrating. All of the things that you take for granted that you can do with your fingers and thumbs, that you can grab things finally, that you can adjust the amount of pressure you apply to all these things. You can't do that anymore. It's all gone. I will say this about this king is as ruthless as you may see, uh, may see in how he treated these people, I do find one thing that about him that I find pretty amazing that most people today don't have. He said, God. Did you see that in there? He mentioned God. He said, as I have done, so God hath requited me. He believed there was a God, and he believed what comes around goes around. You know, if, if a lot more people in today's society believed in what comes around goes around, it'd be a better society to everybody. The problem is we have a generation that's grown up that has the inability to see what they're doing is wrong. They think, I want to do it, and that's all that matters. That lack of understanding there's a God watching you every second of the day, and not just what you're doing. It's what's going on in your head. You know, it's one thing, I, you know, let's just face it. If God's only choosing what I do on the outside, I'm not that bad. Oh, wait, no, he's thinking about, oh, you know, when your mind goes off to left field, right field, center field, wherever it goes, every little idle thought that goes through your mind. That means when you're driving, it's, let me back up, I'll give a better illustration. The best thing I can ever do if I want to find out about somebody and you're a parent, I want to take your kid out on the freeway and find traffic. And, you know, maybe swerve a little bit, slam the brakes a little bit, because those they're little parrots. They will come out with the same emotional tone that you have and repeat it back just verbatim. It's just amazing how much that they can parrot what they hear. They may not even understand what they're saying, but they know that mom and dad say it. 
and out it comes. Imagine all the things, if you really thought about what God sees when he looks through our minds, at all the things that we think about in a day. All the things, oh, God, I'm doing this for you. Yeah, really? Remember, he's seeing everything going on in your mind and all that decisions and all the, should I do this, shouldn't I do that? All the times you're like, well, you know, Lord, I prayed to you about it. Yeah, did you really? Or was it one of those half-hearted prayers? Lord, I'm kind of praying for you, but since I already know this is a good thing, that I'm just going to do it anyways. But, you know, just doing the official tidying up and signing off on things. See, I asked you for the checkbox, so this must be good, right? You know, um, I'm a guy, and there's this girl I like, and, uh, oh, well, you know, she's good. So, oh, check mark, a wife is a good thing. This is, can't go wrong, can it? You know, and then I, then I told you the story before about a friend of mine that his own, her, sorry, the friend of mine in the Navy who met a girl he really liked, her own parents said, do not marry her. I don't know about you, but I don't care how big your checkbox is. That's probably a good indication. You better erase that for a little while and back up the truck. And pay attention to, are you really paying attention to what's going on? The unfortunate thing in his case is he didn't. And he ended up with a divorce and having to pay child support for 18 to 25 years. And in the military, it's not like you get paid a ton of money, but you get to lose half of it off the top. Why? Because when God wants to do things and you ask him to be involved in it, he's going to lead you to the right person at the right time. Every time. The problem is we don't want to wait. Imagine this king here. He's had all these people eating under his table, and they take him back to Jerusalem, do the same thing he did to everybody else, and he had to live out the rest of his life that way. Can you imagine what it would be like if God did the same thing to us? What would it be like for all the times that you decided to go off and do something like the world does? God says, okay, you know what? I'm going to take you back to Jerusalem and I'm going to humiliate you for the rest of your life. Just for one decision. Because that that's rightfully within his ability to do. If you think about it, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He said, thou shalt not. And we go ahead and do it anyways. And we're all guilty of it. Um, and turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And if you're like me and you went to Ephesians first, you're wrong. you got to back up the other direction. Galatians chapter 6, and we're going to look in verse 7. Verse 7 says, be not deceived. Why? My personal opinion, deceit is the greatest thing that the devil's got going for him in this age. Because right now with artificial intelligence, I can make you say anything I want. I can put you in any scene I want you to be in. And you may not be able to tell the difference and you may not be able to prove it's not you. That's how good the technology is getting. Be not deceived. God is not what? Mocked. See, we have a lot of people who like to mock God. God's going, just wait. Judgment's not now. The payback isn't now. It's still coming. You can mock me all you want now. Just remember that when you're burning in hell. When you're screaming out to God, oh, please, God, forgive me. And God goes, I gave you your chance. I gave you this chance, and I gave you this chance, and I brought this Christian to talk to you. And this tract was sitting at the gas station because they were like me, and they didn't want to give a person tracks, so and you jam it in there so they can't get the gas handle out without track being there. You know, only those kinds of things. And uh, 
what's going on? God's not going to be mocked. You can mock him now all you want, but payback isn't now. Payback's in the future. Now, God may choose to pay you back now, but there's no guarantee he's going to do it. It says, not only that, it says, God is not mocked for whatsoever a man, what? Soweth, that shall he also reap. See, there's a lot of people out there that are going to get their just reward. I'm thankful I'm not going to get my just reward. I'm thankful that God is merciful to me, a sinner, and that all the things that I deserve to have done, just as a saved Christian, I am so thankful to God that he's merciful and doesn't make me pay for every single one of those. Now, some of those I pay for. You know, you do stupid things and you get older. Um, your body just does not bounce back right away. It sometimes says, you know, time out. No, we're not doing this anymore. I'm done. You know, it's like uh, I was talking to Bob one time. I can't remember. One of the kids was doing something in here a couple weeks ago. And I was like, yeah, I could do that once. Then it's a 911 call. <laughs> you, know, you know, that'd be it. I'd be like, yeah, it's going to, you know, and then it's, can all the doctors fix you back together or not? Um, but that's the way it is. God's not going to be mocked. We're going to reap what we sow. But thankfully, as Christians, we don't reap what we actually sow. Now, you may. God's going to make you are going to reap some of the things you sow, but you're not going to reap all of it. And I'm praise. I, I can't tell you how much I am so thankful we have a merciful God that that's way that we don't have a God like Allah and a God like everybody else has. Our God is merciful and doesn't give us our due result. You know what we do really owe him. Uh, let's turn back to Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1. And we're going to look in verse 8. And it says, Now the children of Judah had fought against Jerusalem and had taken it and smitten it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. So this is the first occurrence of the word Jerusalem. Um, the first occurrence of a of what the town they're actually really talking about is turn back to Genesis chapter 14. Turn back to Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. In Genesis 14, 18, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, it's the same city, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. So the first recorded instance of the city of Jerusalem is actually called Salem in that case, and there was a priest of the Most High God there. Now we fast forward in history, and in the book of Judges, they go up and they have to take it because there are no godly people in that city anymore. Uh, that's one of the things in your Christian life that you have to really concentrate on in your Christian life is dealing with when you win some battles against the flesh and against the devil, don't give up the high ground. Don't let the devil get back in there and take it back over. Don't let the world get back in there and take it over. Keep it for the Lord. Keep it, you know, keep that, make that battle only have to be a one-time battle and not a continuous ongoing battle. Nobody wants to ever do that. And by the way, if you have to go back and keep fighting over the same thing again, the bad guys typically start getting wise. They start learning about some of the methodologies about how you fight and all this other stuff. It's going to get harder and harder. Well, if our own human enemies operate that way, don't you think the devil's a little bit smarter than that? Don't you think the devil's more than wise enough to figure out the different ways that you're going to have to go back to this battle? And by the way, if you want to win these battles, you need the Lord on your side. And that's not a, just a, oh, Lord, 
you know, prayer for two seconds and then off to battle you go. That's the Lord being part of your daily battle, the daily walk that you have. So the first occurrence of the full name is in Joshua 10.1, and it comes to pass when Adon Zidek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and utterly destroyed it, and as he'd done to Jericho and her king. So this, this city's there, and the amazing thing is God's taken the city. Jerusalem means it's supposed to be a city of peace. This city's been fought over more than any other city in recorded history. Um, I did, I didn't write them down. I have the notes somewhere of all the times it's been attacked and battled all the way through a Bible history and secular history. Uh, I just forgot to bring it with me, unfortunately. Um, but nonetheless, this city has been attacked over and over and over and over again. And here God is calling this the city of peace. I mean, that's, I don't know about you, but that's a sense of humor. You'd have to have a sense of humor to call it that. But it's also a sense of prophecy. It will be the city of peace. But it's only going to be the city of peace when the king of peace shows up. When the prince of peace shows up. When the Lord comes back to set up the government, then there will be peace in Jerusalem. That's why one of the uh, prayers that a Christian should pray is pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Why? Because it can't happen until the Lord shows up. Guess what has to happen before the Lord shows up? Trumpet's got to blow and we got to get out of here. I don't know about you, but I used to look at that as a win-win. That's a good prayer to pray anytime. Um, in Isaiah 9, 6, it talks about the fact that um, unto us a child is born and the government is going to be on his shoulders. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when God sets up Jerusalem as the capital of the earth and the government's on his shoulders. That means he's the one in the charge of everything. He's the one that delineates all that things. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? I mean, if, if God said that the territory there was a land flowing with milk and honey, can you imagine what it's like when God is in charge of everything? And you have four growing seasons a year? I mean, we're in Washington. We're lucky if we get one. You know, if you got hay, okay, you might on a good year get two or three cuttings. But mostly, if you got tomatoes or anything that's got to go for a while, you're lucky you get one in sometimes. Imagine what it's going to be like when God takes the curse off this earth. Uh, gets rid of mosquitoes. Praise God. You know, and especially if you're from like Minnesota, you really don't like mosquitoes because they'll just rip your screen door down and come on in and visit. You know, they, they used to sell for tourists. They used to have these little mini uh, bear traps are like this big. And they would say, you know, Minnesota mosquito trap. <laughs> but think about all the things that we deal with. Think of like having to weed a garden. You don't have to do that anymore. Uh, how about all the nasty weeds that are out there? You know, poison ivy, poison oak, uh, fireweed. I don't think they have, you guys have fireweed out here? I don't think so. I don't even know if they have that east side. We have that back in Montana. Because pretty much, or uh, sorry, Minnesota. In Minnesota, pretty much if it grows there, it either doesn't like you or it hates you. That's pretty much the only thing. Because you got ticks, you got fireweed, which is, it's got a, it's like a grass weed, but it's got a, like an oil on it. And when it gets in, it gets on you, it burns and it's an oil. It doesn't just come off. Uh, that's not fun. You got poison ivy, poison oak, uh, I mentioned ticks. Oh, leeches. Because just if ticks weren't enough to have those in the trees, if you go in the water, they have leeches everywhere. By the way, there's like over 10,000 lakes. So good odds are anywhere you get in water, there's going to be leeches. So there's there's something that just doesn't like you pretty much everywhere. You know, that's must be why the Norwegians went there, I guess. I'm not sure. At least that's where all my family came to when they came from Norway. They went to Minnesota. 
Uh, but nonetheless is, can you imagine when God removes all of that stuff? Imagine looking out at trees and they don't turn yellow and red unless they were supposed to be yellow or red and then they stay that way the whole time. Imagine being able to go up to something and taste the most fresh fruit possible. And the problem is, our, see, our, our bud, our taste buds, they're messed up. They really are. Uh, if you go down to Mexico, the bananas we eat, they're like, they're not even ripe yet. Why are you eating them? It's like, I don't know. That's the way they go in the store. They're not green. They must be ripe. You know, it's like, no, that's not how you eat them. Or all the other kind of fruits you get. It's like sometimes you can get some good ones. Like you can get good crunchy grapes at Costco sometimes or Walmart. And then other times you eat them, it's like, ew. I don't think my dogs even want to eat these. Can you imagine what it's going to be like when God takes a curse on this earth and to see what the flowers originally and the trees and all these fruits and berries and all this other stuff, what it's going to be like? What an amazing place that's going to have to be. And God's giving them a picture of that here when they go into the land. Uh, turn over to Haggai chapter 2. And we're going to look in verse 9. And they're talking about the temple here in Jerusalem. It says the glory. I mean, just think about that. God's saying the word glory is going to be used here. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give what? Peace, saith the Lord of hosts. See, that's where peace is really going to start first. When the king says, this is my place, that's where you're going to get peace. It's not going to be in New York City at the United Nations building. And if that's your hope for peace, I hate to disappoint you, but there's been actually more war since we've had a UN than it was going on before we had the UN. So that track record's not really that good. Uh, not only that, we continue to have wars in the same places over and over and over again. Not that they didn't do that before, but now it's pretty much everywhere there's a war. With the UN involved, you can guarantee it's going to come back. Just wait some time. But God says here in Jerusalem, that's where peace is going to start. That's his city. And when he claims it back as his city, that's going to be start of real peace on this earth. Not the fake peace, the barter peace, the paid off peace, you know, whatever the under table negotiations are to make people pretend they're getting along. Uh, turn over to Psalm 122. Psalm 122. Psalm 122, and we're going to look in verse 6. I mentioned this before, but here's the verse for it. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. They shall prosper that love thee. Can you imagine all the Old Testament Jews that have prayed for the peace of Jerusalem through the millennia? Can you imagine being, uh, say, turn of the century, you're in Russia, and they decide to expel all the Jews and take everything they own, and God says, pray for the peace in Jerusalem. And they're probably thinking, why don't you pray for peace for where we're at right now? Uh, you get into the 1930s and 1940s in Germany and Austria and Poland and all these other countries there where Hitler was killing them. And the Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Don't you think they were saying, hey, Lord, how about some peace for us right now? But here's the thing. Do you remember what the Jews said when they killed or when they were going to put our... Christ, our Lord on the cross, let his blood be upon us and our children. Can you imagine putting that curse on your own child? 
I mean, let's just face it. As parents, you may get genetics from your parents and have some health issues. Uh, you may look a certain way because your parents look a certain way. You may pick up words and phrases because wherever your parents grew up and how they talk and all that. But can you imagine your parents putting a curse on you that has a, no apparent end? Now, it does have an end, and that's in the future. But for all these generations have come through, they're dealing with a curse put on them by their own parents. And here the Bible says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. How about praying for get the curse off? How about doing all the things the Bible says to get the curse off you? All those kinds of things. Um, it's a difficult thing when you think about all the things the Jews have gone through and you wonder why there's such conflict. You think about the Middle East since Israel's been there. In 1948, when they started the whole thing, we're going to become a nation, they had a standing army of about 2,500 people, if you want to call it that. Compared to the, I think it was like 26,000 soldiers plus all the reserves that were all the nations around them. They're like, we're just going to drive you right out to the sea. I don't know if you noticed this, but that didn't work so good for them. They didn't drive anybody out to the sea. By the way, they got the bright idea. Well, we're going to just come attack you later on. 1967, right? How'd that work out? Not real well either. Even though they're under a curse that's put upon them, they're still God's people. We should still pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We should still pray for the Jewish nation and the people, the Jews, particularly as individuals to get saved. We know as a nation, they're not going to get saved until the king comes back. But as in individuals, they can all get saved. They all can turn to Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, and we're going to look in verse 1. Here Zechariah is talking and it says, The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord, which stretches forth the heavens and layeth the foundation of the earth and formeth the spirit of man within him. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in siege both against Judah and against Jerusalem. There's no getting around it. The fact is, as long as there's a Jew in Jerusalem, there's going to be problems. In fact, as long as there's a Jew around, period, there's going to be problems. But even more so if they're in that land. Why? Because the devil doesn't want them there because God promised the land to them. And the devil doesn't want anything to, anything of God's program to be successful. Uh, we can read on uh, in verse 3. It says, uh, and in that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. By the way, that was a, how I got this part of the message ties into am service. And it says, a burdensome stone for all people, all that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. The best thing our U.S. government can do is just leave them alone. Stay out of it. It's not our fight. It's not our battle. Now, they're not going to. And if you are going to get involved into as a nation, you just need to take the Jew side and let them win. Now, God's not going to let you do that. That's why I'll never be elected president, anything else, because I'd be like, uh, what do you need to drive everybody around you and take over the land that belongs to you? You just tell me, we'll send it to you. Okay, God would give me a heart attack, Senate and, the Repub- and everybody would vote against me, all that other stuff. That's why that'll never happen. But nonetheless is, why? It's a stone of stumbling. It's a difficult thing that God's put out there that it doesn't matter where you live, 
there are people that are trying to figure out how to come up with a peace plan for Israel. Have you ever thought about in the Bible, none of the Hivites, Hittites, Amorites, Jebusites, whatever the other ites are, none of them are around, but the Jews are still here. And there's still problems going on. That's why you have Christians of all people and other people of the world say the Jews the problem. They're the ultimate problem for the entire world. Well, you better be careful who you start labeling the enemy as. Do they, have they done bad things and atrocious things? Absolutely. But you better be careful. That's somebody else's servant. That's not ours. Um, Judges chapter 1, verse 9. Judges chapter 1, verse 9. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites that dwelt in the mountain and in the south and in the valley. So the first thing I want you to see with this is that God's showing us some things. First thing is God doesn't is really not concerned whether or not your battle takes place in the mountains or not. He's more than able to help you when you're on the mountaintop. Things, and honestly, as a Christian, most of the time when we're on the mountaintop, that is when we, we think we're the most victorious. That's when we think things are the easiest. But here it also goes beyond that. And it says in this particular case, it's also in the valley. We all know that inspirationally, the valleys talk about that's the tough times. That's the difficult times. That's when nothing appears to be going your way. God says, I'm able to give you a victory in that battle even there. On top of that, what's the last direction he gives you in that verse? It's the mountains, and it's the valleys, and it's a direction. The south. Anybody have an idea why he would say the south? Where's God at? What direction? North. So that's the complete opposite direction of where God is. So it doesn't matter whether you're up in the mountains it doesn't matter whether you're down in the valleys or you're in the complete opposite direction of where God is. God says, I can still give you a victory. But that requires you to turn to him. It requires you to have him involved in your battle plan. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 9 talks about, and afterwards uh, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites. You ever remember hearing that name in the Old Testament very often? Canaanites. It keeps coming up over and over and over and over. And I know this is just the book of Judges, but remember when they were told to go in the land, God said, kill them all. Wipe them out completely. What did they do? They didn't do it. So what? God continues to bring them back in and be a side or be a thorn in their side over and over again. Not just them, but some of the other nations there, the Philistines and other ones. We'll get to those in a minute. But it's the same thing in your Christian life. When you don't get complete victory over some sin, some temptation, some problem, something going on in your life with the Lord, God has a tendency to want to bring that thorn back, stick you in the side with it and go, okay, it's round two. Are you going to learn the lesson this time? Okay, nope, round three, here we go. You know, ding, ding, there goes, you know, it's that kind of a thing. We need God to help us with these battles, and it's not just enough to win the battle, it's to keep the victory. See, that's the difficult thing is a lot of people have this mentality of a military battle as well. You win the battle, you win the war. No, you win the battle and that's a battle and then you got to go on to the next one. Winning the war is a much longer, much bigger thing. And I'll classify it in this sense. The United States has not won a war since World War II. 
Now, that's my opinion. You can talk to the other people however you want. But you know what? Japan is nowhere like they were prior to when we won them. Guess what? They're our ally now. Germany is no longer the way they were. They're our ally now. Name me a Korea. That was, that was a false peace that's still technically in a state of war. There was no victory, no nothing there. Vietnam was a complete failure. By the way, it was not a complete failure because of our military. It was a complete failure because of our government. Go on to the any other wars. Guess what? We went into Iraq twice. Guess what? Is Iraq our best friends these days? Are they truly our allies? No. See, we haven't won a war in the last time. You know why? Because we forgot what it meant to go to war. You don't go until somebody says, oh, I stopped. That's enough. No, you go until you win. There's a big difference between somebody telling you, oh, we give up. That doesn't mean you won. Usually that means you haven't. Because when the Japanese surrendered, it was a unconditional surrender. That means no condition at all, we surrender. That's victory. In our own personal lives, when it comes to sin, when you have an unconditional victory over sin in your life, that is a victory where it'll never bother you again. But guess what? If it comes back, it's not unconditional. That means you had a conditional victory. That means it can keep coming back. We need God to deal with those things just like they needed here. And we'll see a little bit more as we go down. Uh, verse 10, And Judah went against the Canaanites that dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron before was Kerjath Arba. And they slew Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. Anybody heard these names before? Reading your Bible? They showed up before here. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. It's all the way back in Numbers chapter 13. Um, and we're, well, let's just save some time. Let's not go there. When the spies went into the land, they saw these three giants. So Joshua and Caleb saw them. So did all the other spies. Hmm. So they knew they were there. So in the book of Judges, when they're coming up into this land and they're trying to take it, they know there's three giants there. Your life, you might have some giants. And let me give you a hint. Going down to the little, little creek around here somewhere, picking up a whole bunch of small round stones and a sling is not going to give you the victory. That worked great for David because that was a physical victory. What we need is a spiritual victory against a giant. When it comes to a spiritual victory, you need God Almighty doing the fighting for you. You don't win because of you. You win because of him. You want him on your side doing the battle. In Numbers chapter 13, uh, 22, it says, And they ascended by the south and came unto Hebron, where Ahiman, Shishai, and Talmai, the children of Anak, were. If you look up the Bible and you find the word Anakim or Anak, that's giants. That's the, that means tall folk. Uh, I used to use uh, as an illustration our church, I don't know how many of you know uh, Carmen Hudson. Carmen Hudson's like, what, six, seven, six, eight, or was. Now he's a little bent over, not quite straight up as tall as he used to be. Imagine being, and we used to have some kids that would sit up in the front. So I'd ask Carmen to come up front. And then you see some little kid that's like six years old and you look up at Carmen. Now Carmen's a gentle giant. He wouldn't hurt anybody. Now God saved him. But, uh, you know, he would stand up there and you see that little kid. That's what they said. We're grasshoppers in their eyes. That's what they're saying is going on here. They have this in the back of their mind. You can guarantee that everybody knew somewhere in this land there were some giants that were really big and we're going to look really small. 
By the way, we all we knew before we came to the land what their th- three of the names of them were. Think about the fear that is. Think of all the fear that we get because something is named cancer. Fill in the blank with a medical disease. Fill in the blank with uh, Alzheimer's. Some other th- disease or some other physical malady, some other thing going on. That's a giant in your land. There's a name attached to it. It means something. But if you're going to go battle that giant, you can't do it in the world's way. You have to do it God's way. And sometimes God gives you the victory and sometimes he doesn't. Um, the giants were discussed about in future battles with them. And in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, let's turn over there. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day, to go and to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to the heavens. A people great and tall, the children of Anakims, who thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said unto thee. Speak not thou in thine heart after the Lord thy God hath cast them out from before thee, saying, For my righteousness the Lord hath brought me in to possess this land. But for the wickedness of those nations the Lord doth drive them out before thee. It's not you. When God gives you a great victory, just to understand it's not us. It's God. When we get down on our knees and maybe it's something where only you and one person knows and you're praying for somebody else and that prayer request comes true, it's still not you, it's him. You may have been the tool, the instrument God wanted to use, but it's still him. He gets all the glory. He gets all the praise. And as we see that Hebron has a very special relationships to giants and Anakims, you can see it in uh, Joshua 14 and Joshua chapter 21. By the way, anybody remember the story of Noah and the flood? Have you ever read that little part that says there were giants in the land? Oh, and after that. God told you all flesh died. And yet, there were giants before the flood, and there were giants after the flood. So if you want some homework to go, you know, study, and you want to dig into some things, how did that happen? By the way, it's going to take a lot of work. But sometimes some of the greatest victories that you can get in your life in dealing with sin, it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of work. In Judges chapter 1, verse 11, it says, And from thence he went against the inhabitants of Debir, and the name of Debir before was Kirjath-Sephir. A lot of these cities had different names, and this will become a little bit more apparent as we continue in the book of Judges, or if you continue reading the book of Judges. And then in verse 12, one of our main characters show up, and it says, And Caleb, you know, one of Caleb and Joshua, the two spies who went in the land, and said, We are well able to take over this land. We're well able to take over the giants. And nobody wanted to listen to them. Well, here he is. All the rest of them are dead. 
that said, no, we don't want to go. And he says here, he that smiteth Kirjath-sephir and taketh it, to him will I give Aksah, my daughter, to wife. So I'll tell you the first thing on this. I think this was his, his was his favorite daughter. That's my personal opinion on this. And he's saying, I have a prized daughter. I love her. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's intelligent. Any guy that has any brain intelligence whatsoever would want her. And by the way, if you want her, uh, there you go. Go get them. Sick them. And by the way, if you die, I'm not out anything. You know, this doesn't, I've got no skin in the game. If you go run up the mountain and they kill you, well, you're dead. Sorry. Next. Who's the next candidate for my daughter? You know, kind of a thing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell you that's what happened. I'm just, you know, my mind thinks that way sometimes. And Athenio, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it, and he gave him Aksah, his daughter, to wife. I'll tell you this. I think that's a godly family right there. You know, there are some good godly families out there. There are. And I think it's an amazing thing when you can have a family that can have children generation after generation that are still trying to serve the Lord and do right. What kind of family must have Caleb lived in when he's talking about right here, one of his relatives, it says, Athenio, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. That somehow, and I don't know if this is because of Caleb, I don't know if this is Caleb's parents, but they obviously brought their kids up right. Not only did they bring them up right, these kids, when it came time to the age of to change from this is my parents' God, they made it their own God. See, that's the hard problem we have in America today. We have a lot of people that are, you know, like I told my kids, you have a drug problem. I'm going to drug you to church every time the doors are open, right? But after they move out, it's up to them to make those choices. Are they going to make the God of their parents, the God of the Bible, their God, their personal God, or not? That's their choice. And praise God when you have family that has generation after generation of kids choosing to go right way. I'll tell you what I think that is. That's a good testimony to the entire family. Because as a parent, you can do everything you want. But if they can see a whole family, the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles, everybody, they can see the church family as well, all striving to go in the same direction and serve the Lord and do the best they can for the Lord, then they go, you know what, this is real. You know, my, you know, my parents, you can't trust them. You know, what do they know? Uh, you know, until you're about 25 or 30 and then you realize, hey, my parents, you know, they're pretty smart. And then you get in your 40s and 50s and go, wow, my dad was a genius. You know, those, those kind of things. But think of those young people. One of the reasons why they don't believe and make that God their guard is because they don't think you did. They're looking around and saying, hey, do all those people in church or the majority of the people, are they truly making God their God? Or are they just resting under the God of their parents? And on top of that, it takes a few young people to make a bold stand and go, here am I, Lord, send me. Whatever you want, however you want me to do it, I'm game. Because it only takes one or two of them to set the tone for all the generations underneath them. Uh, Back up at Faith Baptist Church, we got a new youth pastor in. And I won't say this in front of him, and hopefully he'll never hear this tape. Um, but I'll say this about him. We got the best group of boys we've ever had at our church since we've been there, which was 2001. And why? Because they know where his heart is. There's no doubt about where his heart was. He's praying to them. He's preaching to them. He's encouraging them. He's doing everything. We got, we got one boy that basically only thing he ever wore were long sleeve shirts and shorts. He's wearing a suit at church because he wants to, not because there's some clothing standard and you're supposed to look like the pastor or anything else. He wants to. Uh, we have teen boys that are now involved in our tape booth to help record services when myself or one of the other two guys are not there. 
We've never had that before. We've got boys that want to help out. That's when you start making a change. Is when you can, all you need is to get one of those boys that will make a firm stand for the Lord and be like Joshua. As for me and my house, this is the way I'm going to go. When you can get that young boy, the younger the age, better to make that goal, you know what? He's going to get a whole bunch of kids to go follow him. And he can help them with that transfer of my parents' God being my God. And then God can do something miraculous. Uh, our pastor Aaron, when he goes up before our services, he takes all the boys up front to the altar. They get down on their knees and they pray for the service that's coming. Service hasn't even started yet. They're all up here praying. I'll tell you about that. It would put you to shame if you're an adult. I, I know there are people I could go to my church and I could basically say, when was the last time you were at the altar? And they may be able to say, I don't even know. So that means in your entire life up to this point, nothing has been important enough to you to go up to the altar and pray about it. These boys think that the church service is important enough that they're going to come up and pray for you. Amen for that. And I'm very thankful for him. Now, I don't tell him that when I'm around him. I give him a bad time and all sorts of other stuff. But he's doing a great job. And why? Because it's real. He's not talking to them and acting one way and doing all that. It's just real. That's what we need are Christians being real. And I, I understand that means you have to be vulnerable too. You have to let people see you. Get up in front of people and just mumble all your words all over the place and your brain puts them in the wrong order and everything else. It's real. Because if you think I'm going to memorize the entire thing, I'm going to talk about letter for letter. And I, I know somebody who did that. I don't have that talent. I don't have that capability. And if that's the requirement for doing this, I'm out and will never be here. That's not what God asks for. God says, hey, I just want somebody to be found faithful. Okay, well, faithful to little or faithful to much, whatever I got, here we go. Well, it's the same thing in each one of you and your walks of life, the people that you're around, your family members, your friends, the people that live next to you, the kids you go to school with, the kids that you work with, the people you meet on the side of the road, all of that's still the same thing. Are you real? Are you showing them about what a Christian is like? And then we turn down to the next verse and says in uh, verse 14, it came to pass when she came to meet him that she moved him to ask of her father a field and she lighted off her ass and Caleb said to her, what wilt thou? And she said unto him, and I'm sure, I don't know that this is the case. This is what I picture seeing this. She hops off off there. She's got her eyeball, her eyelashes just flapping and, you know, a little smile and tilting the head as she runs up to, up there to daddy and says, hey, in this particular case, give me a blessing for thou hast given me a Southland. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the nether springs. Cause I don't know about you. There are some girls that just like, you see them as a little kid and you can look at the dad and go, Oh, you're in trouble. <laughs> the way she's batting her eyelashes, you, you at two years old, you have got a world of hurt coming, brother. You know why? Cause as a dad, you've got, well, most of the time you have the girl and it's like, yeah, they're girls. You can't treat them like boys. You know, now I had mostly all tomboys. I'm just being honest. They climbed the trees. They ran all over the place. In fact, our, our last pastor, Pastor Bailey, when he came, my cousin's, uh, daughter, they, all the kids were out playing and Pastor Bailey noticed that none of, or a whole bunch of my kids didn't have their shoes on. And of course, my cousin's my redneck cousin, let's just be really brutally honest. My redneck cousin's daughter 
They're standing next to him. She goes, don't you know those crime kids ain't got no shoes? And it's like, oh, really, of all the people to talk about this, you know, it's a brand new pastor. He doesn't even know us yet. My kids had shoes. They just don't like wearing them. They slow them down, you know. And besides, it makes, you know, they don't get them as dirty. So it's, you know, there's kind of a win-win there. But sometimes we forget about the humanity of it. I want you to think about this girl. What is she asking for? She said, hey, I've got this piece of land, but land without water, that's not very valuable. Think about all the things going on in California. Why? There's no water. And so that's why she's talking about here, you know, give me the springs, give me water. That's why it's so valuable. Why? Because without water, you're going to die. Now we have the, we have the benefit of water here. This is not like North Dakota. In North Dakota where I grew up, yeah, we had little streams and other things like there and we had lakes and stuff like that. But we planted trees when I left there in 1978. They were like little evergreen kind of trees. I think when they're about maybe what this tall the last time we went back, maybe. You plant a tree out here, put it anywhere near some water that it rains on, it's this tall in year two, right? This was 1978. <laughs> Water's important. And over there, like over my uncle's out on the family homestead, the well's a thousand feet down. And it's coming up and it's as red as can be because of all the iron and other stuff on it. And even with the filter system, you can't drink it. You gotta boil it. So they got what looks like one of them alcohol hooches that you see in all the old movies from like World War II. That's so they can get drinking water. Water is important. So imagine how valuable you now have this land is that has water. So let's close up. Uh, Let's see. Let's go. Uh, Actually, let's just stop right there. So let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the saints that are here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you give them a special blessing, Lord, for coming out and wanting to hear something from your book, Lord, to want to gather with the saints, to want to gather and lift you up and praise you uh, with song and to use their talents, Lord, to play the piano for you. I pray that you bless and encourage each single person here, that you'd minister to their needs. You know what they are, Lord. And they need you to show up in a real way this week, Lord, to help them with the trials and the tribulations and the difficulties to come. Help them to have the godly outlook, Lord. Help them to look to you to get the victory. Lord, if there's some besetting issue or sin that's going on in their life, Lord, I pray that they would turn to you and ask for you to help them. And Lord, that through your book and through the saints, Lord, that you'd give them a complete victory and that you'd receive all the praise, glory, and honor in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And through his blood, we pray. Amen.